to the Data Driven Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, we explore how to transform your company and career through data-driven decision-making. Want to become a data storytelling aficionado? Then sit back, relax, and get ready to unlock the true potential of your data. Here's the host of the Data Driven Podcast, Dominic Bohan. Welcome to the Data Driven Podcast where we dive deep into how to extract more value from your data, helping professionals transform complex data into compelling narratives that drive clear business direction. I'm your co-host and the co-founder of StoryIQ, Dominic Bohan. And today we're going to discuss the impacts of automation on data storytelling. Joining us today is Mrinal Dariani, who is an enterprise account executive at Salesforce, which is the customer-focused company making cloud-based software designed to help businesses connect to their customers in a whole new way so they can find more prospects, close more deals, and wow customers with amazing service. So today we're going to continue our conversation and discuss how to use principles from psychology, consulting, and sales to tell better data stories. Okay, here's my conversation with Mrinal Dariani, Enterprise Account Executive at Salesforce. Mrinal, welcome back to the podcast. This is fascinating. It sounds like we're drawing from different areas of expertise in your career, psychology, consulting, and sales, diverse range of skill sets. And I'm fascinated to hear how we can draw on some of these very different areas and disciplines to tell better data stories. So tell us about some of these principles that that our audience can use to improve their data stories. Thanks, Dominic. I think maybe let's start with consulting. Right, Because in the last episode, we spent a bit of time talking about where I think the most marginal impact can be, which is focus on the audience, right? Lead with that and you'll save yourself a lot of time, rest of the process. That is actually a principle that comes from or the world of consulting as well. It is both in the presentation, but also in the, in the work to actually prepare for a project. You think about the hypothesis. You think about the hypothesis the recommendation. You think about the end right mm-hmm. at the very beginning, right? And even when you present it, you present the end right at the very beginning. So what does that, how does that take form? It takes the form of when you're, you th- when you're preparing the project, let's say the scope of work, you start with, we recommend X, and then you start working backwards saying, we will need da- this sets of data for it, we will need access to these decision makers, we will need access to these processes, before you actually work towards coming back to that conclusion of we're trying to recommend X. And then, of course, the null hypothesis is one that is the opposite, right? When presenting, when you're sitting in front of the decision maker, it actually starts by the format of your deck, the first slide after the title slide being the executive summary containing every bullet point most imp- from your deck, inclusive of their actual recommendation. You want to start with the ending in mind, right? And that's the first principle from consulting I can share. And there's a few reasons for that. I think the most important reasons, again, why do you start with the process knowing the end in mind? Isn't that counterintuitive? Do you, aren't you not biased towards a particular decision? That's the first kind of pushback from that. And the reason for that is because you need to, at the end of the day, data, this is not a research project. This is not something that you're, especially in the business world, you have the freedom to fully explore whichever way the road takes you. You typically have a decision or a recommendation you're trying to make, which has its own downstream impacts, right? Will you then invest in 
making that decision happen? Will you then close off an investment elsewhere? Right? And so therefore, you need to think about what that end result is before, and then you start to build, gather the story, build a process around it. So it's not biased, it's actually efficient. In terms of thinking of presenting the end in mind, the reason for that is simply put, executives, especially the ones that have the both budget and authority to make a decision, typically have very short attention spans, mm. whether intentional or staged. <laughs> it is, you know you're not going to have their full attention throughout the room. Why not at the peak of their attention when they're at sitting down with you, deciding whether or not they're going to then pull out their phone in the middle of the presentation, within the first five minutes, tell them everything they need to know. What's the executive summary, right? This is our recommendation. These are the two, three reasons why. These are the risks. These are the next steps that we would recommend. Lead with that. So if there's only one thing they remember for the rest of the presentation, it's that. And if there's only one thing they think about while you're presenting, it's that. So that's the first principle from consulting I'd recommend. Fantastic. This is a principle I've used a lot and I've taught people to use this principle. So a lot of management consultants call it the pyramid principle. Start with your most important message. I think sometimes they call it answer first, lead out with the hypothesis, tell your, get straight to the punchline, basically. And the pushback I often get is exactly what you identified, which is if you're starting with the solution first, doesn't that lead to bias? So how do you address those concerns that if you're starting with the solution in mind and working backwards, that you're going to be biased, that potentially you miss things? Yeah, and I think, so potentially you might miss things. That is a risk. That's a fact. Mm -hmm. Might even limit the amount of data that you're looking for. At the end of the day, at least you know that the impact of that data story is one that's relevant, right? So you do create risks that you become biased. And if you were, for example, lazy, you might not even spend that much time disproving the point or looking for counterfactual data to, to prove that point. But at least you know that it's effective. At least you know that the story would have met its purpose. At least you know that you can then move on to the next data story or the next project because you've at least not spun your wheels, spent more time than needed on a particular project, and then it was irrelevant, right, at the time of communication. That's bias, but I also want to mention there is another, there's another pushback from that that typically I hear, which is, but if we start with the ending, we'll lose the value of the story we're building up, right? Mm. It, the story itself has a crescendo, and so why would we bring the ending right at the front? Doesn't that kill the suspense? <laughs> and in other words, and actually I find that very interesting. What that reveals, it reveals in itself, first of all, excitement that person has towards working on data, which is obviously very welcome. But again, you have to remember the unfortunate truth that just because you're excited about the crescendo of a story and the time you spend on the data, just because you're excited about working with data doesn't necessarily mean that your audience is. Right, And you, you have that meeting with them, you can go through that entire story, but you might want to make sure that at least they get the most out of it. And where you two meet, which is your recommendation and their curiosity, at least it's addressed as early on within the meeting as possible. Thanks. Any other skills from the consulting discipline specifically that people can apply from data storytelling? Sorry, <laughs> that people can apply to data storytelling? I think, so the pyramid principle is a really good one. And if you want a book that actually gives you both the 
a deeper dive into that, but really good examples for that. The other tip I'd recommend from the consulting world is that it's a subset of that pyramid principle. So the pyramid principle, there's a few good books written on it. I think the one I read was the McKinsey Way or McKinsey Method. It was a few years ago, but so I forget. But aside from when you think about a pyramid, you think about the tip, the one that everybody's eyes are drawn into. You're thinking about what does everything build up to? What is that end? And that's the that's one of the things you take from that pyramid principle. You think about the end at the beginning. Yep. But Riddle, the I other just, thing to think. Can I just yeah, jump in there for anyone that hasn't heard of the pyramid principle before? The idea is that you lead out with your most important information first, and that's the apex of the pyramid. So if you imagine a pyramid, at the top of the pyramid, it's very small. There's not much there, but it's very critical, and you're leading out with that first. And you almost build a story around that pyramid structure where you lead out with your most important information. And then as you go down the pyramid, you add more and more detail. So for anyone that hasn't heard of it, that's the very, very pyramid principle style summary of what it's all about. Yeah, so let me build on that and also give an example, right? So if we build on that, the when you say, if you imagine again a pyramid, think of the one in Egypt, which everyone can think about, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine that you had a crane or some heavy machinery and you could take the first meter off of that pyramid, right? Like you shave it off. What you shave off still is has the shape of a pyramid, right? Repeat the process. What if you did the first, thir- first three meters or first five meters? You shave that off, it's still the shape of a pyramid. What that means is that when you're actually presenting your story, You start with the end in mind, you start with the apex, you start with the conclusion. Immediately after the conclusion, you think about the next one meter. You think about what are the three, two, three main reasons that would support this conclusion and mention all three of them. Don't go into the details for every single one. Just lead with what are the three big justifications, three is an arbitrary number, that that will actually justify that. So that if they only had time, if they only had one meter to carve out, they would actually get the point. And then after that, then you go thinking about, okay, within argument number one or justification number one, what are maybe one or two case studies, additional justification that can, again, add up to prove that point, right? So assume you could go five meters down. What are those additional levels? And so the idea of a pyramid principle is it is actually, let's think of a, let's think of a, let's, the way that you would appreciate a pyramid principle is if you think about the opposite. The way that a lot of people tell their stories is by chronological order, chronological principle, meaning to say, I was assigned project A six weeks ago. Since that time, and you start your presentation, first what I did was I looked in data sets A, B, and C. I removed data set C. I focused on A and B. I realized that B needed cleaning, and so I cleaned it this way. I then filtered it down into this subset because of A and B. I then started analyzing. So if you think about it, the way I'm presenting the story right now is chronological. The steps in the process I did to eventually reach the conclusion I have for you today. And finally, the conclusion is you should do X, right? So that's chronological. But the pyramid principle is you don't care necessarily about that linear story. You care more about what the end is. And then one level, one meter down, break it up. Is that tight? Great. Okay, now break it down into five. And the idea is that if you were presenting something to a decision maker, what if they stop you at the 15-minute mark and mm-hmm. you can't do the full 60 minutes? At least you've done mm-hmm. your apex of the pyramid and the three main reasons, right? So yeah, that's, the, that's explaining the pyramid principle a bit further. 
That's fantastic. I think that's something I can really relate to. When I started my career some time ago now, I was just dead set on the belief that I needed to show my full working. And it's amazing how often, especially senior decision makers, do not care at all <laughs> about the details <laughs> yeah. and are just happy to completely skip over it. So the pyramid principle is a very efficient way, I think, to avoid going into details that they don't need to be convinced of or perhaps aren't even interested in. I fully agree, Dominic. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I have been on the receiving end of that uncomfortable truth before. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So I think that's a really useful principle from consulting. I'm really keen to get into psychology. This is an area where I've got no expertise and I'd love to hear more about how we can draw on psychology to tell better business data stories. Yeah, and I think we could spend a, we could spend a full another episode just mm. on psychology, but I'll pick two that I that I think at least we can really focus on. So the first is confirmation bias. Mm. And the idea here is that in simply put, we hear what we want to hear, right? Any time you get into a conversation with someone, particularly if it's a presentation, recognize as a data storyteller that they come into the room and they attend that meeting, they click join, they walk into that physical room, and as soon as they think they come into that room, they're expecting something, right? They have a question in their mind, meaning to say, hey, Dominic, I have this 3 p.m. with Dominic today. I expect... I want to learn more about, let's think of an example, about why I shouldn't expand my programs to Indonesia. Random yeah. example. So why I say that, why I say you remember that confirmation bias is that recognize that when someone enters the room with you, they may not necessarily be hearing everything that you say. They may not, they may only choose to hear or they may only selectively hear phrases or sentences or words that directly match what they're already expecting. That's not to say that the audience or the person you're presenting to will be biased towards a decision, not necessarily. They could very well and hopefully are open-minded. But their choice of words are different from yours. And their worldview is different from yours. Their personality is different from yours, or probably is different from yours. And so you have to recognize that when they're only looking to hear what they want to hear, what that means for you as a data storyteller is you have to read the room actively. Right, mm -hmm. can't, you have you can't be someone that focuses too much on the story that you're telling and the gusto, and more importantly, the words that you have memorized, the transition that you have perfected through rehearsal. You can't lean too much on that. What you have to focus much more on is how well are they actually connecting with your content? How well are they hearing what you are hoping that they hear? And so, one quick practical tip to do this is literally pause. It's so simple to say and it sounds simplistic, but it's actually true. When you pause in the middle of the point that you're trying to make or you pause in the middle of the presentation entirely and you take frequent pauses to elicit feedback, you can actually hear what has actually resonated and stuck with them, right? And that allows you to give you a chance to really thinking about, should I double down on certain areas? Should I rephrase certain points, right? And I've seen really strong storytellers prepare a presentation, right? And I've been in the receiving end of pitches myself, right? They have a technology. They know that they it can do X. They keep saying it can do, it can, let's say, for example, speed up efficiency, right? Speed up efficiency. I've heard it two or three times in the presentation. Yeah. I've seen a decision maker sit next to me say, oh, you mean it will make my agents more productive? And I've then seen that same person, the presenter, mm. through the rest of the presentation, not use the phrase speed up efficiency, mm. but use agent productivity. 
And why that's effective is because you could have practiced that multiple times before coming to this meeting, but he chose to switch in real time to actually make sure that what he said resonated with what my decision maker cared about, right? Mm -hmm. And that's confirmation bias, recognizing it's that real time experience, knowing that it's not so much how you say it, it's about what they hear. Okay, I'm learning a lot here. This is great. Confirmation bias. We all have confirmation bias. Even if we're aware we have confirmation bias, it's still there. And this is such a simple tip. It sounds like what we need to do is basically speak the language of our stakeholders. It's really just active listening on steroids where we pick up on the words and phrases that resonate with them. And then I just as you're saying this, I just realized an example in my own career where the opposite occurred where there were certain phrases that would just upset and turn someone off immediately. And it's like just using certain words, or in this case, I had a stakeholder who just hated Meko charts. Have you seen these Meko charts or lasagna charts? Very similar to like area charts. And as soon as one of these was shown on the screen, it would just totally derail the conversation. And so can you tell us a bit more about how to deal with sensitive topics that could derail a conversation, how we can adjust to that perhaps in real time as data storytellers and presenters. That's so interesting, first of all, that story that you just shared because I've never been I've never seen someone react viscerally to a chart. I <laughs> I'd loved I'd lo- have loved to be in that room, Dominic. Like that would have been a fun fun experience. But how to how to react to sensitive topics as a presenter. Mm. I think put it this I'm sure you would have as a presenter, you would have chosen to avoid it. You would have done mm-hmm. all that, but sometimes it happens that way. Frankly, I don't have a golden rule on how to adapt in real time to something like that because it is mm-hmm. purely contextual. I've at least contentious topics. What I have done is ask to park it to the end of mm-hmm. the presentation because I know that it will take a longer discussion and then making and making sure that at the very end, that answering it in more detail where it's basically not derailing from the rest of the presentation, we really can do a full Q&A on that topic. Or being very diligent that if I've parked it to the end, mentioning it, let's say we have five minutes left, but actively, proactively telling that person that I will follow up with you on email about this. Mm. We've run out of time, but we will talk about this, right? Because the last thing you want to do is destroy your credibility by part hearing a contentious topic, a question, parking it, and then obviously forgetting about it or conveniently forgetting about it, right? Not acknowledging the person who's asked or brought up that sensitive topic. So you want to follow through. These things happen. You just want to make sure that you don't derail from... If you know it's going to take time, you don't want to derail from the rest of it. And that it's so simple, but so useful. It sounds like particularly useful if you've got five different personalities in the room and one person is very concerned about, let's say, cost or compliance... And they, I've had this so many times, they want to steer the meeting there and it's going to just take up the whole meeting. It's going to take up the whole discussion to address their concerns. So I like this approach of politely and respectfully acknowledging that it's a valid concern, that we're going to do more work, that we'll take the time to follow up with them, address their concerns, but that we have to steer back to basically the top of that pyramid, the key issue that we've come to sort out today. Yeah, and actually acknowledging that it is important does make Mm. the person asking that question feel that their question was important, right? Hey, 
that compliance question, actually, I don't think a short answer will justify it. It does require more time for us to spend on that, and I would like to. Can we do that at the end? Do that so that they feel that their question was important, their topic was valid. I love where this conversation is going because it's really backing up everything that you've said yesterday about data storytelling being safe from automation. And now we're actually seeing concrete examples of these human skills that I'm just thinking in real time would be extremely difficult to get ChatGPT or any other of today's software to automate. Anyway, we won't go back into the automation uh, and AI conversation again. Let's go into more of these incredibly useful skills. Mm-hmm. Your career has been primarily in sales and there's the old saying that everyone is in sales, right? So how can we use techniques that salespeople use to close deals and build relationships more generally in a data story that might have absolutely nothing to do with sales? Yeah, I think when people think of sales, they think of something that needs to be purchased and they think of the seller requiring Mm. a purchase from the buyer. But if you think about, if you remove that definition of something that needs to be purchased, just think of it as a decision that needs to be made. Whether or not money is involved or investment is involved is immaterial, but just the decision needs to be made. Then yeah, you come back to the point that we're all sellers. If you're a data storyteller, if you're being asked to, let's go back to that example we've been using, invest in expanding to the Indonesian market. That's a decision, right? You might not hold the budget. You might not be specifically asking for money for it. It might be a low-cost decision, but it's a decision nonetheless. So when we say that we're all sellers, really the simpler way to put it is we're points in our careers we're trying to influence or ask for decisions, right? And so if you then think about, okay, then what can we learn from sales to apply to data storytelling? Mm-hmm. I guess maybe what I'd lead with is anybody that needs to persuade towards a decision, you can't be you can't be emotionally invested in it, right? You have to sellers are trained to be comfortable with rejection, right? Mm-hmm. And to recognize that rejection is not necessarily a bad thing right? Actually, to be ignored is a bad thing, right? Hmm. So what I mean by that is, if you're sitting with someone, you're maybe pitching something or you're presenting or moving towards a decision, for them to decline that meeting and not find time on their calendar is actually the worst case scenario. For them to sit into that meeting with you and disagree and say, actually, I disagree. I don't think we need this product or I don't think Mm -hmm. that we should go towards that decision is actually a good thing because it means that at least the topic is important. At least there's a pain, there is a business need that has to be addressed. It's just a matter of making sure that what you're bringing to the table, whether you're selling a solution or you're moving towards a, a decision, hey, invest, sorry, open up Indonesia, you have to basically work that, come t- go back to the drawing board, improve it before you come back again and get another time on their calendar. So I guess the first thing I'd say is be comfortable with rejection. What I mean by that is, and how do you apply that to data storytelling? Again, you could have spent weeks or days preparing a data story. You could have followed everything we've talked about until now, Dominic, which is you thought about your audience, you really led with the end, you had a recommendation, you did everything, but they disagreed. So the tip I'd recommend is acknowledge the fact that they were in the room with you, they heard you, they thought through your proposal and they said no, is actually a good thing. Be comfortable with that because they've absorbed your presentation, you've actually done the work already. Mm. It just didn't go the way you wanted to, right? But yeah, so I guess maybe the first tip I'd recommend is be comfortable with rejection. It's the data set, the deck that you've built, however beautiful, is not your baby. Mm. 
I, yeah, I can see a lot of wisdom there. It's, it's something that I struggle with, putting yourself out there and risking being rejected. And so it's easier not to take the shot, not to put yourself out there and share your ideas in the first place. And the biggest thing I've learned from rejection is if it's sales, you fine tune your offering. If it's a data story about an internal recommendation, you fine tune your analysis. You're gonna learn so much from that process of getting rejected or having your ideas critiqued. Yeah, I agree. And let me give you another tip. The other tip I'd recommend for data storytellers that I've picked up in sales is get creative with how you benchmark. So let's I'll give you a sale I'll give you the sales example and I'll share how that applies to data storytelling. In the sales world, the thing that most sellers are afraid of is the phrase you're too expensive, right? Big words, thank you for your time, but you're too expensive. <laughs> or this is too expensive. Right? Over time I've learned from watching other sellers that that the best responses to that are not but we can discount, right? Mm. Or but this is the reason repeating your value proposition, mm. for example, or why that's it. That's actually not. The best response is a question, right? Compared to what? And that's when you actually break it down and you think about you're too expensive because it's only ever compared to three things. Your solution is only ever going to be expensive compared to your competition, number one, the budget, number two, mm. and the returns, number three. So the idea is as elite sellers will spend, use that and not be afraid of that. First of all, again, not afraid of rejection, but use that as a way to engage the buyer and say, you're comparing our, you're, we're expensive relative to your budget. Okay, then we can get creative in terms of does this solution actually have, can we actually expand the scope so that we can bring in multiple budgets that would then end up working towards the solution. So that's actually a very creative way I've seen someone double the size of their deal, right? Compared to the competition, that's when you can really break it down and understand, okay, what are you comparing us to and how? And every player in the market has their own value that they bring into the world. And so therefore, you compromise on certain things, right? Whether it's the, the you're paying a premium for a reason, right? And you have to work through what those are. And the third is to the return. So they don't actually believe that what you're pitching will have the intended impact, right? The business, whether you grow revenue or save costs, right? And so that conversation where it's too expensive relative to the returns, that's when you can spend more time justifying and picking apart the business case for that that solution, right? So again, in the sales world, you hear, you literally have such a small data set, your price, the mm. response is too expensive. What do you do? Get creative with benchmarking, right? You think about benchmark to your budget, the competition, or the returns, and then you have a conversation about it. In the data world or data storytellers, again, getting creative with how you benchmark is a way for you to stand out, right? Because internal data, everyone has that. Or at least everyone should have access to that. And in some organizations, they conflict. And <laughs> I'm sure, Dominic, you've seen that before, mm. right? Where the same problem statement can be, two people have very different trend lines for that, right? But get creative with how you benchmark. Look at what's available online for what's common in that industry. Look for what's, for something that you can pull from your competitor. Make some assumptions. Do some, do some back-of-the-napkin calculations for how your competitor is solving the same save issue and bring that benchmark side by side. I've seen another elite seller, a teammate of mine actually, get creative with the story they're trying to tell to the executive, not by focusing on the solution itself, but by pulling the population data of that business 
and saying that you need to focus on this and providing a very valuable insight about an underserved size of slice of that population and then having a conversation about that, about that data set. That ended up justifying and coming back to the point of they're trying to make, right? So yeah, get creative with how you benchmark. It's also a very good way, frankly, to save yourself from automation. Thanks, Bruno. So some great advice there, especially useful for sales, but also we can see how we can apply that more broadly. Is there anything else that you wanted to share today before we uh, wrap up? No, I guess maybe this is a short a short little tip from mm. psychology, which is the availability bias, right? Mm. If you Google availability bias today, there'll be an image, like Google image search availability bias, you'll see an image that can encapsulate what I'm talking. It, it's visual, it's a little bit more clear, but effectively, it's a bias that everybody has. They think that what's presented in front of them is representative, or at least it's it's what's important, right? They attribute a lot of importance to what is directly in front of them, right? Very rarely do people really think about the data set that's being presented in front of me, what is the grand scheme of data that's available, what are the what are those benchmarks, mm. public, external, that I could use to compare. I say this because, or I, I mentioned this availability bias, is because it can actually play in your favor as a data storyteller. Just using data by itself already adds a level of credibility to your presentation that not using data wouldn't. And so what I'm trying to say is that if you're a storyteller, if you're trying to persuade people for a decision, if you're trying to, for example, in my in a sale in the in a seller's environment, right? In in my environment, at the start of the year, we have to do a territory plan. We plan to focus on these set of customers. This is how I want to do it. You tell your boss, I plan to do X Y Z activities to achieve my target. You can go down that route. You can the justification you could use is because I've done A B C last year. It was successful. We got etc. Or you could do an analysis. You could bring in some data about what the revenue that actually closed last year. Use your CRM, play with that, and, and just bring it forward. What I've seen is that in this, I've actually seen that just because people bring in data into their story, however minute, however short it's part of the presentation, it adds a lot of credibility, mm. right? It adds a lot of gravitas to the presentation, right? Because very rarely do audiences, or not say very rarely, but many audiences actually don't think about the broader spectrum of what data is available, right? They just are appreciative of the fact that the statements you're making, it's not based on historical. You can actually back it up with some data that they may or may not have thought about. So yeah, I think you can use that to your advantage as a data storyteller. Know the availability bias. But yeah, I think that's the last one I'd like to leave you with, Dom. Thanks. That's a great note to end on. So for our viewers, if you didn't have time to Google image search that, availability bias is basically, this is what's available is like my fist, sorry, this is what's available, is my fist, and then the entire universe of what we could potentially access is so much larger. And people can get very myopic and just focus on this tiny subset that's at hand, that's easy to access, that is available. Exactly. So great to see how we can use that to our advantage. So Mridal, thank you for sharing all of your insights across both episodes and today especially about psychology, consulting, sales, seeing how these diverse disciplines can be used to tell better data stories. Some fantastic practical examples there. We appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Dominic. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Okay.